0: Exodus chapter 3, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. We're going to read about a pivotal time in the life of a man named Moses. Exodus chapter 3, verse number 1. The Bible says, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Let's stop there and pray. Father, I love you tonight. Thank you for the word of God. Lord, may we receive it in obedience and humility. And may you be glorified, Lord, in our response to it. I pray for these requests that have been given. Meet with them according to thy will. I pray that tonight you get glory in us and through us and in the service this evening. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When you read through the Word of God, Moses is one of the most prominent figures in the Bible. He's the man that God raises up to lead the children of Israel out of their slavery and captivity into the land of Egypt and to lead them through the wilderness. He is not permitted to go into the promised land, to go into the land of Canaan, but he is the steward of God's people for 40 years as he leads them through the wilderness wandering. But, you know, the Bible's story of Moses does not simply begin with them leaving uh, Egypt under the hand of God, but rather it begins many, many years before. In fact, the Bible records for us the birth of Moses and in abbreviated form records for us the early years of Moses's life and then records for us his his exile, so to speak, in the land of Midian and his return to the land of Egypt and how God used him in such a mighty way in fulfilling the plan of God for the nation of Israel. When you study his life, you'll find that it neatly divides itself into three different sections. Each of these sections are 40 years long. The first 40 years, Moses spends in the land of Egypt. It's a time of exaltation for him. He has been brought into the home as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he sits as the de facto heir to the throne of Egypt. He is literally set up and appointed to one day be one of the most powerful Powerful men in the world. It's in this place that God stirs his heart and reveals to Moses that he will be used of God to lead the children of Israel out. The Bible details for us how that one day he slays an Egyptian who was mistreating one of the Hebrew slaves. And when word of this gets out, Moses flees for his life. He runs as a fugitive and lands in the, uh, the country of Midian, lands in the place of the Midianites. Uh, there he meets a young woman and meets her family and he marries her. He will spend the next 40 years of his life, the second portion of it, as a shepherd or a farmer in the land of Midian. Not much is really spoken concerning this time in Moses' life. In fact, we have no real reason to believe he ever heard the voice of God between when God had spoken in his young years and when God speaks to him here in our text tonight. And then the last 40 years of Moses' life are spent carrying out the will of God. Can I just encourage you to say, God's never done with you. It doesn't matter what your age, doesn't matter what your baggage, doesn't matter what your experiences. If you have a submitted heart to God, God's never done with you. Moses did more for God in the last 40 years of his life than he did in the first 80 years of his life. He was more productive in his aged years than he ever was in his youth. But this moment of time in Moses' life is marked by a key point, a key event that transpires, and it's contained here in our text. Moses, after 40 years of living the life of a uh, of a Bedouin shepherd, all of the sudden he is leading this flock on the backside of the desert. He's at a place that the Bible calls the Mount of God. Horeb, by the way, later on God would lead him back to this very place and give the law of God. Mount Horeb is also Mount Sinai. It's interesting. You know, the place where God speaks never really changes. God speaks through His Word. Amen. And so uh, the very place that God appeared in the fire, he would later on appear to Moses again in the dispensing and giving of the Old Testament law. And while he's back on the backside of the desert, the Bible says that he sees a sight. The Bible says in verse number two, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush burned with fire And the bush was not consumed. Now, I want you to listen to how Moses characterizes this. Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burnt. You know, nothing God does is ever by accident. Nothing's coincidental and nothing's incidental. And it is not by accident that this moment happens, that this lesson, this truth, this event happens at this moment in Moses's life. It is a transitional moment. It is a pivotal moment. It is a deeply important and meaningful moment in his life. And God is teaching Moses some things about uh, how God is going to use him over the next 40 years. It's important to realize where Moses is at in his life when this takes place. You know, the Bible, one of my favorite passages about Moses, it's actually not found in Exodus. It's not found in Hebrews where Moses' faith is detailed. It's actually found in Acts chapter number 7. And Stephen, before he's martyred, he preaches a sermon. That's a good reason why you don't threaten to kill a preacher, amen? He'll just start preaching. And uh, Stephen starts preaching a sermon. They're getting ready to stone him to death. And he begins to tell, and it's a pretty long-winded sermon, by the way. And he begins to tell the story of God's deliverance of Israel and God bringing about the Messiah. And within that narrative, there's a portion that talks about Moses. And it gives us a little insight onto Moses' frame of mind in our text. Listen to what the Bible says in Acts chapter 7. Verse 22, the Bible says, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds. And by the way, let me just pause there. And isn't it interesting that Moses will later on say that he is poor of speech? But the Bible says here that he was mighty in words and in deeds. Isn't it interesting that when in his own intelligence, in his own wisdom, in his own intuition, he was capable and equipped, God couldn't use him. What until God robbed his eloquence that God could begin to use him? It's a reminder to you and I, as we are a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it's not in the, uh, in the intelligence of our mind. It's not in the force of our argument. In fact, we are vessels of weakness that God uses as displays of his power and of his ability. The Bible says that when he was in uh, Egypt, he was mighty in words and in deeds. When he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. They were slaves at the time. He said, I want to go down and see what their lot in life is like. The Bible says in verse 24, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God, by His hand, would deliver them. But they understood not. Stephen tells us that this act on the behalf of Moses is not merely a generous act of mercy, of empathy, and of rescue, but rather that God had already revealed to Moses that he would be used to deliver the children of Israel. And Moses is now operating under his own energy, under his own strength. He's going on a white horse as a white knight to rescue them from their oppressors. And he in his own strength is seeking to carry out the plan of God. By the way, that's the very reason it didn't work, amen? Because we cannot do God's work in our energy. The Bible says they understood not. In other words, it didn't work. It didn't happen the way that he had hoped. And so he flees Egypt having failed in God's plan. Let me say number one tonight, Moses was a failure at this moment in his life. He and his mind had messed up God's plan. I'm glad to report that God's plan is more resilient than to rely solely on you or me. But in his mind, he's a failure. God gave him a shot and he blew it. He messed up. He threw it away. And now when he flees to the desert, he is a failure in his own mind. The Bible tells us not only that he failed in this, but when he realized that word was disclosed to Pharaoh and that his life was imperiled, the Bible says he fled away from Egypt. By the way, it's interesting. The Bible in Hebrews chapter 11 talks about uh, Moses fleeing and doing so in faith. But that's not speaking of this moment. That's speaking of later when they left under the hand of God and did not fear the Egyptian armies pursuing him. In this moment, he's fleeing in fear. He's running, he's scared, he's trying to save his own neck. I would say this, at this moment, here in Exodus chapter 3, the man that's standing there, the 80-year-old man standing there looking at the burning bush, in his mind he is a failure, but it is undeniable that he was a fugitive. He didn't go to Midian because he wanted to go to Midian, he went to Midian because he wanted to get away from Egypt. He was running from his failure and he was running from God's plan. I'm glad to report even when we try to run from the Lord, our legs aren't long enough. Our pace is not swift enough. And God, when He wants to, He can run us aground. One of the great lessons in the life of Jonah is that you can't get far enough away from God. He can get to you wherever you're at. And here Moses, he thought he had left all this behind, but now here's God. Even in a scrub bush in the middle of the, of the wilderness of Mount Horeb, here's God showing up to do something in his life. Moses was a failure and Moses was a fugitive. But then I would say this, the Bible tells us his vocation. It opens our text in this way. Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. I would say this, Moses was a farmer. Now, I don't mean that to cast any aspersions on being a farmer. Certainly in the Bible, being a shepherd or a farmer is a noble vocation and is often elevated and exalted as being a beautiful thing. But for Moses, I would remind you that God had not called him to be a shepherd at this stage in his life. God had rather intended to use him not to shepherd sheep, but to shepherd Israel out of the land of Egypt. What does it mean that he went and became a farmer or a shepherd? Well, it tells me this. He had evidently given up on God ever using him again. He didn't run to Midian, regroup, gather resources, get a plan to go back. He went and found steady work. And said, I guess God is done with me. You see, when we see Moses standing by this burning bush, this is not a man standing in the full bloom of his potential. This is a man standing there whose life is in shambles. He is, to his mind, a disgrace, a deserter. He is a failure, a fugitive. He has given up. He has thrown in the towel. And then here God appears to him. I'm glad to report it's never too late. I thought about this 40 years That he spent in the wilderness leading these sheep. And you know, uh, one commentator called it the school of God's unconscious preparation. You think about what Moses had learned during that time. Even without hearing God's voice. God was in that time training Moses for how he would use him in later times. And I know in my life, and you can probably admit this in yours. There are times we can look back that we thought God wasn't dealing with us and wasn't growing us. But God was in fact preparing us for something he wanted us to do. And I thought about all of the lessons that in that 40 years, Moses had learned that he would need in the next 40 years of his life. For instance, he no doubt learned about God's protection when he fought off the wolves and the bears and kept that flock safe. He had probably learned about God's provision when he sought green pastures and found out the Creator had placed them where he needed them. He probably had learned God's patience when he had to go out and rescue some erring and wandering sheep Leave the ninety and nine behind to go seek the one that had gone astray. And he had learned about God's process when he led the sheep as opposed to driving them. You know, Moses would spend the next 40 years of his life shepherding in a different way. He'd have to learn patience when the children of Israel murmured against him and Aaron and against God himself. He would have to learn God's protection when standing formidable trained armies would march out and take the field against this wandering band of worshipers. He would no doubt have to trust God for provision when the people having no sustenance, God would bring manna from the ground and quail from above. No doubt he had to learn about God's process when, as a leader, misunderstood. He would have to just keep plodding forward and trusting God and letting God through his example do something that could not have been done through his force of personality. God had taught him a lot of lessons. And he's getting ready to be called into the game, so to speak. God has him on the precipice of carrying out the great work of his life. But before that can happen, God must teach him another lesson. And so here God appears to him in the burning bush and he must learn a lesson, not just about God's provision and protection and patience and process, but he must learn something about God's personal work that God does in himself. I tell you this, whatever skills and and abilities you have are rendered moot if you don't understand how to let God work in you. If you're not willing to let God take up residence in your life, and I understand that you and I, as born-again believers, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. But as born-again believers, we likewise can grieve the Spirit of God. We can quench the Spirit of God. We, We can ignore the Spirit of God. And until we will learn to let God work in us and through us, we cannot do the work of God in our life. Here God is revealing some things, teaching some truths, and they speak to this simple question. What had gone wrong 40 years earlier? God's going to address the fundamental flaw in Moses' thinking. What had gone wrong 40 years earlier, and how could Moses get it right this time? Moses is taught three truths by the example of the burning bush. And I will go ahead and tell you that there is more substance here than just merely the example We could talk about the things God said. We could talk about how God commissioned him. But even in, as he said, seeing this great sight, God taught him three important truths about the will of God being done in his life and how we let God use us for his glory. I want you to notice them tonight and then I'll be done. Notice number one with me. God taught him something in the source of fire that was in the bush. One of the things that's interesting, commentators will often look at these miracles that God performed and try to ascribe to them some natural explanation. Uh, To do so is folly. All, All that's needful is just say God did it and that's enough. But one of the things they will suggest is that there are times when out in the desert in the heat of the day, whenever the sun is beating down and these dry scrub bush brush bushes are, are, are all around the place, that it is possible just for the intensity of the sunlight to strike a spark in those dry, arid bushes and for them to catch on fire. But notice that the Bible does not say the miracle was that it burned. The Bible says the miracle, and to Moses' mind, the miracle was not that it burned, the Miracle was that it burned without burning up. And so Moses wants to see not what kind of bush it is. He knows what kind of bush it is. He wants to see what kind of fire it is. Even in this, God's teaching him an important truth. It's not the bush itself that's special. It's the fire that burns within it. Can I say God uses all sorts of people that have no business being used of God? God uses people that are ill-equipped and unsuited for the work of God. And why is that? Because it's not about the bush. It's about the fire that burns within it. So here Moses learns two things about this source of fire within this bush. Notice number one, it was a foreign fire. And he said, what do you mean, preacher? This was a fire that was not native or natural to the bush itself, but it was a fire outside of the bush that had instead entered the bush and caused it. To light a flame. You say, what do you mean? What are you getting at? Well, let me just say this. Moses learned that if he's going to burn brightly for God and if God's going to use his life, it's not going to be the inner flame of self and of reliance and of intelligence and of ability, but rather it's going to have to be the presence of God in him. He needs something in his life if he's to see God do something great through him. You see, he had gone with that natural fire 40 years earlier and it had burned out. In fact, it had burned up the glory of who he was in it. And now he's a disgraced Bedouin shepherd on the backside of the desert. And God's saying, Moses, what went wrong is you did this in your strength instead of doing it in my strength. I would say this, it's a foreign fire. But number two, it was a divine fire. Bible tells us this, that it's the angel of the Lord that appears to him. One of the things you'll find if you study the Bible, there are times that this character, this, this individual, the angel of the Lord, there are things that people do unto him and for him that God would not permit to be done unto or for anyone except for himself. One of the things you'll find about angels in the Bible is whenever human beings come face to face with angels, two things invariably happen. One, they always seek to fall down and worship the angel. Number two, the angel always forbids it. And that's true of every angel in the Bible except the angel of the Lord. There are other times, for instance, the angel of the Lord stops the hand of Moses, or of Abraham from slaying Isaac, his son, on Mount Moriah, and this is his reply unto Abraham, thou hast not withheld thine son, thine only son, from me. Well, it was the Lord that said, Abraham, take your son up onto the mountain and sacrifice him to me. And now the angel of the Lord is saying, you've not withheld him from me. Sounds to me like the Lord, Jehovah in the Old Testament, and the angel of the Lord are one and the same in their person and identity. Amen. The Bible describes him as walking in the flame of fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he says, the fourth is like unto the son of God. Modern Bible perversions change that. They soften it and weaken it and suggest that it it was just like a son of God. But King James Bible says like the son of God. We know, of course, why he looked like the son of God, because he was the son of God. The theological term for this is a theophany or a Christophany. A pre-Bethlehem appearance or incarnation of Jesus Christ. And you'll find them littered all through the Old Testament as God dealt with mankind. And here is another example of a theophany where God is revealing Himself unto mankind. But the Bible says no man hath seen God at any time. So how did God reveal Himself? Well, just as in the New Testament He did it in the person of Jesus, so likewise in the Old Testament He did it in the person of Jesus. and this. The angel of the Lord that's appearing is none less than Jesus Christ, God, the son, the son of God himself. So when the fire is appearing unto Moses, it's not just an angelic fire, but it's a divine fire. And here is the truth that Moses has to learn. Moses, it's not in you to carry out the will of God. It's in me. I must indwell your life and I must engulf your life if you are to be used of me. He had to learn the source of fire in the bush. But then there's a second truth that he must learn. You know, Moses himself says, the great sight is that the bush is not burnt. Now, the Bible says the bush was burning But burnt being the state of something that's been devastated, ravaged and consumed by fire. What Moses is saying is it's not that it's a remarkable thing that there is a bush that is aflame. It's not that it's so remarkable that this bush is on fire. What's remarkable is that it's burning, but it's not burning up. And Moses said, I want to learn how that bush can light a flame, become engulfed by fire, glow brightly, catch my attention, draw me unto it, and yet still not be consumed. I don't know if Moses understood the significance of his curiosity and why it was piqued, but I'll tell you this, that that was the very question he needed to ask in a deeper sense. How do you burn without burning up and burning out? How do, you, how do you allow yourself to be lit aflame by the fire of God without it consuming you? Because this was a man that 40 years earlier, a, a fire had been kindled in him of the will and plan of God. What Moses wanted in Egypt was a noble thing. I don't believe he just came to himself that he was going to lead the children of Israel out. God had showed him how that by his hand they would be delivered. God had disclosed his will to Moses. God had lit a spark in him. But pretty soon Moses said, it's not burning brightly enough. Instead, let me help it. He poured the lighter fluid of his own ability. He poured the kindling of his own energy upon it and tried to stoke and build that flame up to a place of climax and apex before God was prepared to. He tried to do in his own energy what God could only do through God's own ability and it had literally consumed him. It's really hard to overstate the status that Moses had in, in Egypt. I mean, you understand, he he is the heir to the throne of Egypt. He was a glorious individual at that time. When the Bible talks about him being mighty in, in, in the words and in deeds, what it's saying is that he, in his military prowess, in his wisdom, in his economic standing, in his political gamesmanship, I mean, this is a guy that was getting it done in Egypt. This was a guy who everyone would have looked at and say, what a fit heir that is to the throne of Pharaoh. And then in a moment, I'm talking about in a matter of a couple days, he went from being that to being a fugitive on the run in the land of Midian. You say, preacher, what is that? Well, that's what the fire of your own intuition and energy will do to your life. So much potential, so much ability. And I do not want to speak for God in this respect, certainly God in his providence knew the mistakes that Moses would make. And certainly it can be reasonably assessed that without those mistakes and without God humbling him, God could have never used him. But is is it also an impossible thought that had he been willing to be patient and wait on God, God might have led the children of Israel out, not by freeing them under duress, but rather through Moses' political position, simply releasing them from that place of bondage. You say, preacher, you can't know that. That's true, and you can't know the opposite. We cannot say. Here's what we can say. Whatever potential Moses had burned up in the flames of his own intuition and energy and wisdom when he took God's will in his own hands and refused to submit to God's timing and God's plan. See, it's, it's a whole different thing. You might be sur- surrendered to God's will, but are you surrendered to his plan? We think of God's will as a destination or as a situation or station in life. It is the will of God for me to be the pastor of Walridge Baptist Church. But can I tell you this? There was a vast difference between simply that truth and that reality and the winding road that God took to put me where I'm at today. Are you surrendered to both His will and His plan? Or are you merely surrendered to His will without being surrendered to His plan? Here's Moses, surrendered to God's will. I'm going to lead the children of Israel out. Got it, God. I'm on board. I've signed on the dotted line. What he did not reckon with is that God's plan looked wildly different than His plan. Because of that, He burns up all the glory that He had. Now He stands and washes, watches this bush aflame in God's presence. And he learns this important truth, not just about the source of the fire in the bush, but about the survival of the fire by the bush. In other words, he learns how that happens. And this is the simple truth that God teaches him. First, that natural fire consumes the bush. The whole reason he stopped and looked is it was unnatural. Had it just been a typical flame, a typical fire, the bush couldn't have survived it. And can I tell you this? Your life can't survive you operating in your own intuition in your own wisdom, and in your own energy. I mean, there's people all around, and I could give names and you could give names of people that are doing the best that they can and utterly failing at this thing we call life. And the reason is because they're doing the best they can. Can I tell you, it's not enough. If you want to do the will and work of God, it's not enough to do the best you can. You've got to allow God to do through you what He and He only can do. You've got to acknowledge your inability and acknowledge that that natural fire, that if I go down that road and lean on the arm of flesh, it's not just I'll waste time. It's not just I'll find it inefficient. It could literally burn me alive. He learned that natural fire consumes the bush, but he also learned that spiritual fire sustains the bush. (laughs) It's interesting. You know, that fire is God himself. I will tell you this, that bush was never safer in its entire existence than at this moment and this time. A meteor from heaven could not have destroyed that bush. Why? Because the presence of God was indwelling. So it looks like it's being consumed, but actually it's being sustained. It looks like it's being destroyed, but actually it's being preserved. Here we find the... The fascinating dichotomy of God using a human being, that it's the destruction of self, but it's the exaltation of Christ. Or as John the Baptist himself said, "It he must increase and I must decrease, he learned something about the way that that bush not just burned, but refused to burn up. Bible tells us that God speaks to him out of this bush and he says, Moses, Moses, you know why? Because God knows your name, (laughs) Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And he said, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. What does Moses learn about doing the will of God for his life, about serving the Lord? Well, he learns that the source of the fire must be divine. Can't be in his own energy and strength. He learns that if he goes in his own energy and strength, it's not just that it'll be a wasted time or less efficient, but it will in fact consume him. But that if he'll let God's presence and God's will be the driving force in his life, and if he'll lean on God daily and allow God's presence to buoy him, then that spiritual fire will sustain him. But then he begins to draw close. And as he draws close, God puts a requirement on him. He says, Moses, you cannot approach unto me in those shoes. You have to take those shoes off as a symbol and sign of reverence and as a recognition that you understand the sanctity of who you are approaching unto. Here's what he learned. He learned something from the soil of foundation that was around the bush. He learned that you can't stand on God's ground like you stand on other people's ground. He learned that there has to be a difference betwixt the two. I think one of the important truths in the Old Testament is the Bible talks about us putting a different between the profane and the holy. And we think of things that are profane as something being iniquitous or wicked. But profane mainly, merely means something that is common or something that is not divine or something that is not sanctified by the presence and power of God. God said there's a difference betwixt the two. It's why, it's why when we come into church, it ought to be a different experience. It, it's why the music should be different than the world's music. Because there's a difference between the profane and and the holy It's why there should be a difference in the way that that we that we address. We should do our best to try to to honor the Lord in the way that we dress and make sure we're not doing anything that would bring shame to Christ. Why is that? Because there ought to be a difference between the profane and between the holy. God is once again drawing a distinction here. And he's saying, Moses, there's a difference between that soil that you're standing on and that soil that I'm standing on. What's the difference? Well, and I want you to think about this concerning your life. If we're looking at this as a type or a figure, then in many ways the bush is a picture of Moses himself being indwelt, inflamed and engulfed by God himself to be used of God. And God is going to take Moses and he's going to plant him somewhere. Now, what I mean by that is God has a plan for the place and for the the avenue and, and, and the order of his life. And here's what God teaches him about what that place needs to be and how God can use him. Notice two things here. Notice number one, the flame evidently cleansed the soil. God says the place where on you're standing, Moses, it is holy ground. Now, that doesn't mean there was anything wrong with the rest of the dirt. What it means is that in a unique way, in a spiritual sense, or in a symbolic sense that God had consecrated that ground and made it separate unto Himself and a holy place tells me this, that my life, if it's to be used of God, it's got to be planted in holy soil. My life can't be unclean and God use me. Now, there's none of us that are perfect, and if you think you are, the Bible will quickly disabuse you of that notion. If any man say he hath no sin, he lies and does not the truth, and the truth isn't in him. But there's a difference between acknowledging the infirmity of our earthen vessel and allowing ourselves to indulge in wicked behavior. While none of us are perfect and none of us have already attained, we should follow after. We should press forward. We should press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And if you want God to use your life, then here's what God's going to do. He's going to, he's going to start taking that dirt and he's going to start sifting it. And he's going to start drawing impurities out of it. And he's going to start consecrating it. And he's going to start cleansing it. Don't be surprised when you get serious about serving the Lord when all of a sudden you begin to notice a problem with things that you've been doing for years. Don't be surprised when you say, now, Lord, I really want you to have my life. When you have to start reassessing and rethinking things in your life. And you begin to think, you know, that show I've been watching, I mean, it never bothered me before, but now it bothers. That music I was listening to, it never bothered me before, but now it's bothering. Those people I'm hanging around, I, I, it never bothered me before, but now it's bothering What's God doing? He's cleansing the soil. Cause if he's going to light a bush of flame, he's going to only do it in clean soil. I see the flame cleanse the soil. But there's something else interesting going on here. You know, I remember, I, I used to, I used to be one of those people, well, I'm, I'm getting ready to hurt some feelings, alright? So just get ready, alright? Put on your galoshes, there's gonna be tears everywhere. But I, I remember, I remember, uh, we grew up, I grew up in a house with gray carpet, alright? Gray carpet. You know the great thing about gray carpet? Uh, you never have to worry about it being dirty because it all, always looks dirty. It's gray, right? I, you, people put gray carpet in a house so that if there's stains, if there's dirt or whatever, you, know, you don't really notice it because it's already gray carpet. And growing up, we were never that family that if you came through the door, people would say, hey, you mind taking your shoes off? In fact, can I be honest with you? I always hated people like that. I want to stain your precious carpet, you know? I mean, you know, it's only meant to be walked on, but whatever. And man, I was firmly in that camp for my whole life. I mean, I didn't even want to go to your house if you're one of those people. Like, I'm going to have to take my shoes off. What you want me to leave my belt? Am I going to have to go through a through a metal detector? It's a whole process to come in your house. Man, are you selling tickets too? And I just, I hated it. Then in 2015, I bought a new house. And you know what some sociopath did? They put white carpet in this house. You, you Listen, we can't help what we buy into, but God help you if you put white carpet in your house when you have a choice. And you know what happened? I became one of those people I hated. People come to my door, hey, you care to take your shoes off? And, they, and I know, but it costs a fortune to have to clean it. You know, it's interesting. I say all that, one, because it's just a fun story to tell. Obviously, you know, that's all said with tongue firmly planted in cheek. But it was interesting because I had never really thought of things in those terms until I had that house with that white carpet. And then all of a sudden I started to notice I started to think about it. But, you know, I found this. I've never had anybody tell me no. I've never had anybody say no. I'm track mud all over your white carpet. You know why? It ain't that they care about my carpet, right? It's they care about me and them taking their shoes off before they come in. They could care less. It doesn't matter to them. But because they care about me as a a show of respect, of reverence, uh, being considerate, being gracious, because most people are better than I am. They do that. And they'll often people take their shoes off coming in. Did you know that that's actually pretty common over the rest of the world? Most places you go you are expected to take your... It is a deep sign of disrespect, in fact, in most places, for you to enter a house with your shoes on your feet. It is considered a sign of respect to remove your shoes from off your feet because the ground you're stepping on is not your ground, it is their ground. You don't want to track any germs or any mud or any dirt into their house. And even though you may not care about that ground because you care about them as a sign of respect, you are acknowledging what they own and the importance of it. This was common all the way up even to the time of our Lord and Savior. And it's part of the reasons it was common when people would go into the house that they would have bowls of water and they would wash people's feet after traveling dusty roads. They didn't want to track this dirt into their home. And so when God tells Moses, take your shoes off, Moses, you're standing on holy ground. It wasn't just that Moses thought to himself, well, this is an important place. It wasn't just that he thought it is a great place. He recognized it was God's place. And so he took his shoes off. In other words, the flame didn't just cleanse the soil. Here's what it did. The flame claimed the soil and said, this is God's ground. And as a sign of respect, Moses, I want you to take your shoes off in reverence unto me. You know what God will do with your life if you'll get serious about him? He won't just cleanse it. He'll claim it. He won't just compartmentalize different Sections of your life and segment off your hobbies or your interests or your preferences. Here's what you'll find God will do. If God takes control of your life, he will take control of the whole perimeter and the parameters of your life. All of a sudden, your soul won't be your soul, soil. It'll be God's soil. Your ground won't be your ground. It'll be God's ground. You say, well, preacher, I want to keep some of that ground to myself. Then God won't light himself aflame in your life. Well, preacher, I I want to be able to compartmentalize and I'll have my church and I'll come to church and be churchy when I'm at church and then I'll go live my life however I want to outside. Well, that'd make you a good Baptist, but it won't make you fit to be used of God. Because that soil, when you get serious about God, that fire, it claims that soil. Moses is getting ready to go into the land of Egypt to be used of God in a mighty way. But here's what he has to learn before he goes. He has to learn it can't be of his own strength this time. It's got to be God in him that does it. One of the things that I love that Joseph would say many, many, some 450 years prior to this, whenever Pharaoh would ask him to interpret his dream, Joseph would say it is not in me, but God shall tell Pharaoh the meaning of the dream. You think about that. It is not in me, but God will. (laughs) It's not in me, but God will. And part of Bible Christianity is recognizing for everything God desires for your life, it's not in me, but God will. God can do it. He had to learn if he went in his own energy, he'd just burn out again. But that if he'd go in the strength of God, God would sustain his life. But that before God would do that, Moses was going to have to both cleanse and yield his life unto the Lord. But if he would, that God would do a great work. These lessons he had to learn to be used of God. And can I be honest? These lessons you and I have to learn if we're to be used of God. And I think we ought to commit ourselves unto the Lord to be used of Him tonight. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. And if God has spoken to your heart about any of these matters, would you meet Him in the altar? I'm not going to ask you a hundred questions. I'll just ask you to be obedient to the Lord. The Holy Spirit can He can speak to you. He can deal with you. And so would you meet Him in the altar and would you yield your heart to the Lord and would you let God have His will and way in you and through you tonight. Father, bless this invitation. Lord, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for using us. And thank you for glorifying yourself in us. I pray that we'd be obedient tonight to the beck and call of your spirit, to the wooing and to the shaping that he seeks to do in us. We'll be sure to thank you. Lord, I love you. And I ask it in Christ's name.